So I'd have you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22. We are in the midst of a study on the life of David. 1 Samuel 22. We read four verses, the first four verses of this chapter. 1 Samuel 22, beginning in verse 1. First Samuel 22, beginning in verse 1. David therefore departed from thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from thence to Mizpah of Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while, that David was in the hold. The word hold in the Hebrew is the term for stronghold, a place of refuge or safety, which is what is the title of my message this morning, the cave of Adullam. David, of course, has been, as a young boy, anointed the future king of Israel by Samuel the prophet, the eighth son of Jesse, He has gained renown and fame by his great victory over Goliath, the giant of Gath, the thing that we most remember about the life of David. But we have seen that Saul becomes insanely jealous and envious of David. He cannot stand for the acclaim and honor and glory to go to David as the maidens sing their songs. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And so last week we saw that David had to flee, flee for his life before, before King Saul. He flees first to the priestly city of Nob, where he and his men, there apparently is a handful of men who are fleeing with him, they are given the showbread of the tabernacle to eat. Very interesting situation. We saw the New Testament teaching that it would just be one of those obscure little texts were it not for the fact that Christ himself refers to that very incident as a justification for his disciples eating the the grain on the Sabbath day. And then we saw him flee on down to Gath, on down to the city of the Philistines, the very hometown of Goliath. Seems a rather strange thing to do, and I think it shows us the desperation of David. There was simply nowhere else he could go. But as he arrives in Gath, the Philistine lords recognizing, they say, hey, wait a minute, this is the guy that killed our champion. This is the guy the maidens sing about in Israel. This is the guy that's been anointed the next king of Israel. And David realizes that he's been discovered and He plays the fool. He begins to fake insanity, letting, as we say, a little spittle dribble down upon his beard. And Atish is so disgusted that he drives them away. Have you brought this man to me to play the madman? Don't I have enough fools around here that you've got to bring me another? And so David escapes for his life. But as we looked into those psalms, there's two psalms, of course, that 
have as their introduction the fact that they were written as commemorations of that very incident. We see that though outwardly David was playing the fool inwardly, he was looking to his God for deliverance. Of course, it's a little easier on the flesh when we have been victorious in the battle with our slingshot against the giant than when God delivers us through having a drooly beard. That's not quite as crowd-pleasing, shall we say. But nevertheless, David looked and recognized that God's hand was in his deliverance. And so now this morning we find that David has fled back into the hill country of Judea, back into the edge, the borderland between Israel and the land of the Philistines. He cannot go back. He cannot go into the land of the Philistines. He cannot go ahead into the land of Israel. He is literally in no man's land. And so we find that he goes to a cave, a cave outside the little village of Adullam, and there he literally holds up. We find that his family, his relatives, come to him there because their lives are in great danger. And we learn that he takes his parents, Jesse and his wife, over to the land of Moab, and he asks the king of Moab if they might find asylum there in his land all the while that David is on the run. And that will be, my friend, many years that David will be fleeing for his life before the armies of King Saul. God often surprises us with just how he fulfills his purposes in our lives. We sometimes think we can see what God is doing, and inevitably it seems the moment that we think we've got a handle on it, he'll throw us a curve. For instance, we may learn that Moses will be the one that God will use as a deliverer of his people out of the grasp of Pharaoh. And as we see as a young child, he's placed in that little ark of bulrushes and set afloat in the lake. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe herself. And it just so happens that she discovers this little ark and takes this little baby into her own home, into Pharaoh's house to raise. We, we might say, oh yeah, I got it. I see what God's going to do. Why, He's going to take Moses, this little Hebrew baby, and have him raised in Pharaoh's household. He will be in a place of great prominence, a great power in Egypt. And through his, his rank and through his privilege, he'll be able to deliver God's people. Wrong. Eh. <laughs> Missed it. What we're going to learn is that God will use Moses, all right, to deliver his people, but first he'll strip him of every advantage that he seems to have in our eyes. We might learn, for instance, had we known the hidden secret counsels of God, that it was God's purpose to use Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. We, we might have been, you know, if we'd have been privy to that, that this man will be the one that God will use to establish churches throughout the Gentile world. And we would see him sent to Jerusalem to study at the feet of the great theologian Gamaliel. We say, oh, I see what's happening. God is putting that man in exactly the right place where he'll be a man of influence, a man of power, a man who can pull some strings. Wrong. God will once again strip Paul of every advantage that he had. And then he will use him in his way. We're going to learn that David's path is going to be very similar. It might appear to us that we've got a handle on what's going on here. Here's the little shepherd boy. 
went out there, became the hero in the battle with the giant, and he's going to be taken right into Saul's house, right into Saul's palace. He's going to grow up right there alongside Saul. We might think that this is just going to be an easy, natural transition from the first king of Israel to the second king. But no, it's not going to be that way at all. The path to the throne for David was going to be anything but an easy path. You might say, you know, it's too bad David didn't hear some of these preachers today talking about name it and claim it. This health, wealth thing, you know, if bad things are happening to you, the devil's doing that. God only does good things. You might think David just needed a deeper life course here. Well, he's getting a deeper life course, but it's not exactly what we hear of in our uh, lingo today. He's getting, you know, about the only fellow I ever heard that benefited from a deeper life course was Jonah. He, got, he learned a little in his deeper life course, and so does David here. Because you see, David is literally forced to flee, as we say, underground. Literally underground. You say, can it get any lower than playing the fool, letting the spit dribble through your beard? Can you sink any lower than that? Well, I guess you can. You can go below ground. And that's where he has gone to hide himself from Saul. There is no other place of refuge that can be found for David. There is no one who will offer him shelter. And so we find that he takes his refuge in his God. You are my hiding place. We just sang that. Beautiful words. In fact, words about the life of David. But what does it mean? What does it mean, as Connie and the ladies sang a moment ago, that we're under the sheltering wings of God? May I have you turn over to Psalm 57 just for a moment? Psalm number 57. If you'll look at the inscription at the beginning of this psalm, you'll see that it was a psalm that David wrote when he fled from Saul in the cave. The cave is, of course, the cave Adullam that we're reading about in our text this morning. Look at the words. Psalm 57. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in Thee. Yea, in the shadow of Thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Can you imagine David down there in the darkness of that cave? I mean, that's not the most pleasant place to spend your life, is it? But it's as if David looks at that darkness and what he sees is the sheltering wings of God Himself. In other words, I have fled to you for refuge. Look at verse 2. I will cry unto God most high, unto God who performs all these things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Who do you suppose he's talking about there? That's Saul. God shall send forth His mercy and His truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. In other words, I'm in a pretty tough spot here. I'm in the midst, lying in the midst of people who will destroy me. Verse 6, They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen 
themselves. They're going to fall into their own trap, into their own pit. Look over at Psalm 142. Psalm 142. What we're looking at here is what's going on in behind the scenes. What's going on in the heart, the mind of David. Psalm 142. Notice again the inscription. A psalm written when he's in the cave. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked have they privately laid a snare for me. Listen to these words. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. You imagine being in a situation that people, your acquaintances, your friends, act like they don't even know who you are. They don't want to be associated with you. It's too dangerous. You're, you're a rival to the king. And, and we have to transport ourselves back to that day to understand what that meant. For David to have been anointed the next king of Israel meant that Saul was trying to cut, cut him down any way he could. Cut him off his claims to the throne. No man knows me. They look the other way when I come down the street. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I am in a situation that men don't want anything to do with me. Men will not harbor me. They will not help me. No man cares for me. So what are you going to do, David? I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. You're the only one I can turn to. You're the only one who can help me. No one else will lift a finger for my cause, my defense. I look to you and to you only. Attend unto my cry, for I'm brought very low. Literally and figuratively, yes, he was brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. <clears throat> Notice that our text says, as you sort of get the feel of what's running through David's mind, he is an utter outcast. He has nowhere to go. No one will own him. No one will offer him help, assistance. He is literally living his life hanging, as it were, by a thread. He's holed up beneath the ground, hiding from Saul. But our text tells us that a very strange thing begins to happen. People began to flock to David. Men began to come to him. Isn't that strange? Do you go back to our text? First of all, you'll notice there's three categories. And I'm going to try to draw a parallel here between what's happening here with these men coming to David and what happens in the life of the believer when we come to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Because I think there's a lot of parallels between the life of David and the life of Christ. Christ was despised and rejected of men. So was David. That's why so many of the things that David wrote in the Psalms are picked right out of the Psalms and applied to Christ in the New Testament. The same trials and tribulations that David faced were the things that David's greater son, Jesus, will face. 
And I would say to you that the same three categories of people that came to David are those who come to Christ. Number one, those who are in distress. The word distress in the Hebrew is a word that means a strait. A strait is a narrow type place. We have a little saying, those that are caught between a rock and a hard place. We're in a jam, in a squeeze. We, you know, we use that language to speak of distressful situations. Well, these folks were in a jam. They were in a tight. You'll notice that David's kinfolk come to him. Now, why? Why would his family come there? Because the tendency of those kings in those days, those oriental kings, if you have a rival man who is a rival to your throne, you don't just kill him. You kill his entire family. You cut off all possible claims to the throne. That happens time and time again, even in biblical history. So in other words, they come because they're in a tight. They're in a jam. They've got no other choice. Do you realize that is why people come to Christ? You say, oh, not me, preacher. Hmm. If God left you anywhere else to go, my friend, you'd run there hard as you go. If He left you a leg to stand on, you'd try to stand on. If He left you any other hope, that's where you'd flee. If you have come to Christ, I'll tell you why. There was no other option. I remember that day. Jesus had been preaching to the crowds, the multitudes. And suddenly He began to tell them that they must eat His flesh and drink His blood if they have any part in Him. And man, these guys, this guy's nuts. This guy's talking cannibalism here. I'm not so sure that they didn't understand or they did understand. He's certainly in the spiritual sense, the very sense in which we're portraying in symbols this morning. He was talking about cannibalism, that we must feed on him. We draw our very life and sustenance from him. And man, these folks suddenly got a far away look in their eye. Oh, I just remembered I've got something else to do. Reminds me of the commander of the Confederate forces here in Memphis when the Union Army marched down the river from the north. The day before the battle, he suddenly remembered he had a pressing business engagement in Tupelo and hightailed it out of town. These folks suddenly remembered, hey, I believe I've got better places to be. And that vast number that had been following Jesus everywhere he went suddenly began to peter out and drift away. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Will ye go away also? Peter says, Where else can we go? Thou hast the words of life. There's nowhere else. You're the only one. If there's somewhere else, we'd go. Thou hast the words of life. Don't kid yourself. If God left you another choice, if He did not, to use scriptural terminology, shut you up to the hope of the Gospel, 
if he left you some false hope, you'd be standing there today along with the thousands that are. But God, in bringing a man to his son, strips him of all other refuge so that he, like David, says, nobody else can help me. I turn to you and to you alone. Secondly, it says those that were in debt. Hey, that ought to get your attention this morning. Hey, we're talking about folks like us now. All those that were in debt, they went down to that cave. They joined up. Now, why would these people come? You see, what is being described here is that these people are head over heels in debt. They are the disenfranchised of Israel. They've got no other hope. There's no possibility that they're going to be able to pay their debt. The only hope they've got is there's going to be a revolution. There's going to be another kingdom. There's going to be a replacement. In other words, they are not going to be able to bail themselves out of the situation they're in. Their hope is that there'll be a new order of things, a new arrangement. <coughs> so they that come to Christ. We have an interesting statement our Lord makes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You, if you are not in debt this morning, spiritually speaking, will not come to Christ. You've got no reason to come to Christ. Now, I'm not talking about how much money you've got in the bank. I hope you understand that I'm speaking as Jesus was, blessed are the poor in spirit. It has nothing to do with how many possessions you've got, how, how well off you be in this world. It has to do with how you think of yourself before God. Are you in debt to God? I know we are not accustomed to thinking of sin as debt, but Christ teaches us to think of it in those terms. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he says in the Lord's Prayer. Why is sin viewed as a debt in Scripture? Well, obedience to God is what you owe God. That's just what's right. It's what's owed. And when you fail to render obedience to your God, you're dead. Do you see the point? And so it is that they who come to Christ are those who are conscious of the immensity, the enormity of the debt that they owe to God, and they understand there's no hope, they cannot work themselves out of this hole, that their sins have mounted up to the heavens. Their sins cries out for judgment against them. And they've only got one hope. That's to declare bankruptcy. And I'm not talking about chapter 13. I'm talking about chapter 11, chapter 7. I'm talking about final and complete bankruptcy. But there is a vast difference about a Christian declaring spiritual bankruptcy and the bankruptcy that goes on today. People declare bankruptcy today and they leave their creditors hanging, holding the bag. My friend, those who come to Christ come to Him and they declare bankruptcy of soul. But He is the one who then pays the debt. Do you understand what I'm saying? They've no other 
hope, no other payment, no other form of money. They come to him that their debt might be absolved. He does not leave his father holding the bag. He pays in his own blood the debts of his people. And then there's a third group. Those that are discontented. They're unhappy. That's the bottom line. They're not satisfied. They're looking for something. I know oftentimes we would think that a person ought to come to Christ just because it's right. Just because it's a thing to do. Just because he's commanded to. For the sake of Christ, you ought to come to Christ. That's all true. But the Bible gives us all, from one end to the other, examples of people who come to Christ because they're looking. They're thirsty. That's the problem with that little verse of invitation at the end of Revelation. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. We believe out the, the verse that precedes it. He that is a thirst, let him come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You see, the only folks that are going to come to Christ are the folks that are thirsty. Well, thirsty for what? Life. Life. Now, a lot of folks are not looking for life. They've already got it. Just ask them. They're, they're happy. They're satisfied. And if they're here this morning, they can't hardly wait till we get through so they can get on out there and get to living again. But the folks who come to Christ have had their eyes open that, my friend, what this world calls life is a walking death. That there's no satisfaction, no lasting pleasure in what the world offers. Make no mistake about it, they're looking for life. And these people have become so dissatisfied, so hungry, so thirsty, that they're willing to turn their backs on all else and they're going to come to David. And so it is. They who come to Christ come on the same terms. Let me give you a little bit of New Testament text here just to prove what I'm talking about this morning. Turn over to Luke 14. In Luke 14, down about verse 16, Jesus tells a parable about a man that gave a great feast. That's one of the things I do well in life, one of the few things, but I eat well. I generally don't have to worry about having an appetite. I enjoy good food. And here this fellow throws this big banquet. And he invites guests to come. And he gets everything ready and he sends his servants out. In verse 17, they announce, Come, for all things are now ready. Now come on. We're ready. Feast is ready. The banquet is set. And what happens? Every one of these to whom he sends his servants, they've got something better to do. They suddenly remember they've got something more pressing. One fellow's got a piece of land he hadn't seen. Got to go see it. Another fellow's got to try out a new ox. Another fellow says, I just got married. I can't come. Please have me excused. Not one of them showed up. Now, why? 
they've all got something better to do. There's another choice. These folks aren't in distress. They're not in debt. They're not discontented. They have no use. And so what does the man do? He is angry and he says to his servants, Go out quickly, verse 21, into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Go fetch some gas. Where are you going to find some gas? Find them out there among the people who are in distress, who are in debt. Who are, you see, the poor man, you didn't have to worry about him saying, Oh, I'm sorry, I bought me a piece of ground. I've got to go check it out. The fellow who couldn't walk, you didn't have to worry about him saying, Oh, I just bought me a new ox. I've got to go see how well he plows. The blind man or the maimed man in that culture, in that day, wasn't going to say, Oh, I'm sorry, you know, I've married me a wife. Got to go somewhere else. These folks really. And then the master sends his servant back out into the highways and the byways and said, notice he didn't say invite these folks. He says compel them to come in. Drag them in here. The word compel is a strong word. Drag them in here. Fill this place up. And you know how the servant does that? Well, he just makes a few more folks poor, vain, halt. They'll come, and they'll willingly come because they've nowhere else to go. They've got no other alternative. But there is yet another element of what's going on here. Go back to 1 Samuel 22 a moment. You'll notice that it says of these people that they gathered themselves unto him. They left behind everything they had. You see, these people are walking off from their farm. They're walking off from their homes. They're walking off from their jobs. They are casting in their lot, sink or swim, live or die, heaven or hell. They have cast in their lot with David. They've left it all. They've walked off. Does that remind you of something? When our Master called in His day, men walked off from their nets, their ships, from the receipt of custom. They left it all to follow Him. He says to the rich young ruler, go give it all away and come follow Me. That's what these folks have done. They've turned their back on all else. And if David doesn't succeed, they're going down the tubes down the drain. But they have put their hope in Him. If He makes it, they're going to be sitting pretty. If He doesn't make it, they're doomed. They put themselves on His boat. If it sinks, they're a drowned rat. You understand? 
That is precisely what happens when the man comes to Christ in faith, that we leave behind all else, all other hopes. And I know that we are in a situation, we are in this world, and that's one of the tensions of life, is that we're working out here on a job. We're, we're trying to make a living for our families. We are in the world, and yet spiritually speaking, we are not of the world. If you are of the world, you're not of Christ. You can't be in there with David and out yonder in the field at the same time. Spiritually speaking, you cannot be a part of this world and a part of the kingdom of Christ at the same time. To come to one, you've got to walk off and leave the other behind. That's what these people have done. And notice that he became a captain unto them. They came and submitted to him. They bowed the knee to him. He became their head. I, I love this word because it's the very word that the writer of Hebrews speaks of in talking of Christ. That God has made the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. That's the point. He has become our captain, our head, our chief. Now notice, these people didn't become his his subjects, by him going out and conquering them and swinging the sword over their head, they have willingly, voluntarily come and submitted themselves to David as their chief, as the one who will rule them. And so it is with the Christian who comes to Christ. It's not that we come to him just wanting a fire escape from hell. But we have come to submit our souls unto His rule, under His law. We have come to be His disciple. That means that we have come to be disciplined. Notice the relationship of disciple and discipline. We've come to submit ourselves to the discipline of our Master. To do what He says. But why? What has brought these people to David? There's even yet another element, and I've got to quit with this. We don't see it here in this text, as the Scripture so often does. It just sort of matter-of-factly throws these things out. But there is another text over in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 that sheds even more light on what was going on. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. <clears throat> this is a list of those, these various groups that defected to David while he was on the run from King Saul. In First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 16, we read of an incident that occurs apparently while he is in the cave of Adullam. First Chronicles 12, verse 16. And there came of the children of Benjamin and Judah to the hold, that stronghold, to David. And David went out to meet them, and answered and said unto them, If ye are come peaceably unto me to help me, mine heart shall be knit unto you. But if ye are come to betray me to mine enemies, seeing there is no wrong in mine hands, the God of our fathers look on it and rebuke it. Then the Spirit came upon Amasa, who was the chief of the captains. And he said, Thine are we, David, and on thy side, thou son of Jesse, peace, peace be unto thee, peace be to thine heifers, for thy God helpeth thee. Then David received them 
and made them captains of the band. There is a work of the Spirit going on here. Notice, they come because they're drawn. The Spirit is convincing them. You know, you know, we sing the song. I'm afraid we don't, you know, Steve, we sing so many songs and just sort of gloss right over the words, don't even understand what we're singing. But a beautiful song, I know whom I believe. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. You see, we've been looking at the human side. Men come because they're in distress. Men come because they're in debt. Men come because they're discontented. And indeed, you ask the man, why are you seeking after Christ? Why are you coming to Christ? That's what you'll hear. But unbeknownst to them, there's something going on behind the scene. How is it that they see no satisfaction in what this world offers? How is it that they see that this glory... Out here is a fading glory that the pleasures that this world offers are fleeting at best. Because the Spirit of God is at work behind the scene, opening their eyes, convincing them. As these men are convinced, God is on your side. I don't care what the odds look like. If you were a betting man, hope you're not, but if you were a betting man, how much money would you place on David at this point? You know, here you got King Saul in power, thousands of soldiers at his disposal. David's a man on the run. Nobody will even take him in. He's holed up in a hole in the ground. What are the odds against him? And yet, these men are convinced God's on your side. So it is with the Christian. He believes. Oh, to a large degree, our king is hidden from the eyes of man. It's like that parable Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man that went away into a far country to receive a kingdom. This world doesn't see Christ as a king. They don't see him with a kingdom. They don't believe he's ever coming back. They don't ever believe there'll be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. They see no evidence that God will be faithful and true to his word. So it was in David's day. But these people say God is on your side. Did you get the words of David when he took his family over to Moab? Can they stay here with you till I see what God's going to do for me? This is hardly the name and claim it game, is it, of Pentecostalism in our day. David says, I don't know what, I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know how he's going to do it. I'm going to have to wait and see. But God has anointed me king. And one way or the other, God's going to put me on the throne. We're going to see in the next sermons, next week especially, that there were times that David's life was hanging by a thread. And yet God preserved him time and time and time again. You see, we want it all up front. We want all preserving grace right now. I can't remember who I was speaking with Wednesday night. That's the way we look at it. We want assurances that everything's going to be... We want the money in the bank. 
I'll trust you, God, if you can just go ahead and put it in my account so I can see it there. God doesn't work that way. He's not working that way with David. He will put him in some of the most trying circumstances imaginable and then prove himself faithful time after time after time again. Oh my. A life of faith. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're witnessing. I know it doesn't look like what the preachers on TV tell us that a life of faith looks like. He's not riding in Rolls Royce. He doesn't have a lot of jewels and fancy, you know, fancy clothes, a big bank account. He's a man whose life is hanging by a thread, and yet God is honoring his faith, delivering him time and time again. Well, I was thinking this morning in preparing for the Lord's table that had you been with that little band with David in the cave, sitting around the campfire. You know, these things are pretty easy to read about, aren't they? But can you imagine the difficulties of that kind of life? Life on the run. A life of waiting to see what God's going to do. Waiting for God to move. And here they are, sitting around the campfire, sharing a meal. And you say, well, is this meal for everybody? If you'd asked one of those guys in the cave, they said, oh no. It's not for those folks out there. They've got their hopes. They've got their homes. They've got their farms, their businesses. They're all taking care of that. You see, this meal is for those of us who were in distress, who were in debt, who were discontented, who walked off and left everything behind because we believe God's going to exalt this man to the throne. We've cast in our lot with David. That's who this meal's for. That's who this meal is for this morning. Those who, spiritually speaking, have abandoned all other hope and they have fled to Christ, they have gathered, they have congregated, if you will, they have assembled. All those very synonyms, by the way, for the word church. It's what a church is. I dare say that our church is much like David's. It's sort of the last resort. <laughs> if there was anywhere else to go, that's where we'd be. Goodness knows you got a preacher can't even hardly talk. <clears throat> this is it. What other hope? There's no other alternative. It's either Christ or it's nothing. Well, that's who this meal's for. Have you left all to come and bow the knee to the captain of your salvation? Have you fled for refuge? Have you cast in your lot with the anointed one? Live or die? Sink or swim? Heaven or hell? You're trusting Him. And that's who this meal's for. And if that's not you this morning, you don't need to be partaking of this. Just be quite honest. It's for folks in the cave of Adullam. Are you numbered? 
with the people of David's greater son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this portrait that we find in your word of what happens when men come to Christ, what's going on in their hearts and minds. And Father, we think back, those of us who know you, to a day when we were in the same boat, we became so convinced of the truth of your word that we bought the truth and we cannot sell it. When we became convinced that this world is a death camp and that life is only to be found in the hands of the Prince of Life. On that day, Father, when we found ourselves with no other hope, no other refuge, no one else could do us any good, man couldn't help us and wouldn't help us. But we came to Thee. We looked to Christ. And Father, we know not what tomorrow is going to bring. We have it awfully easy at the present. But Father, whatever it is, we're waiting to see what You're going to do for Your people. We don't know how You're going to do it. We don't know how the pieces will fall into place, but we are convinced that you are God who will fulfill your purpose. You will exalt your Son. Father, there may be those this morning that are not here who know you. That is, those who are without Christ this morning. Those who are out in the world, living a lie, Loving a lie. Lord, might you open their eyes to see the truth. May they see Christ as the one that you have ordained, the only name in which we can find life and salvation. Would you make them willing? Father, they're not willing at the moment. They're in love with the things of this world enslaved to pleasure. Father, I pray that You would overrule the vile emotions of the hearts of men, that You would cause light to shine in the dark recesses of men's hearts, that they might become so desperate for Christ that they'll leave everything behind if they might have Him. Lord, Amaze us, as you've done in the past. Amaze us with your power to save. God, do it for the sake of your Son. May he be exalted in our sight. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.